Lord Jesus, we simply ask that like the Queen of the South, like the men of Nineveh, we would hear and respond to the words of God this morning. Let us not be like the generation that you came to, but let us have soft hearts, please, for the sake of your name. Amen. I wonder how many of us have longed for some kind of sign that Jesus really is still there today, that he really is God's king, and that he really is at work in the world around us. Have you, have you ever longed for just, just a few miracles to confirm the truth of what the Bible says about Jesus? Just one or two. I was longing for that myself as, as I was reading through the earlier chapters of Luke's gospel recently and reading of the miracles Jesus was doing, just thinking, Lord, if only you would do some of these things today. It would just be so encouraging to see his kingdom present among us with power, with obvious power, with tangible power. And surely that would help other people believe, wouldn't it? Maybe you are one of those people who doesn't yet believe in Jesus. And you're unsure whether to trust the Bible. Maybe you've thought at some time or another, I'd believe if only I could see some proper proof. How many people have you heard say that? Too many to count. And wouldn't it be easier for all of us, Christian or otherwise, to accept some of the hard teachings of Scripture, the countercultural ones that can make us so unpopular, if only we could see some present day evidence to support the Bible's truth claims, wouldn't that make life easier? Belief easier? Well, if you've thought things like these, then you're not alone, it's nothing new. As we'll see in our passage, the people in Jesus' own generation were thinking like that, incredible as it seems. Most of us probably think we would be content to see the miracles they saw. That would be enough. We'd be all in. We would follow Jesus like a shot. But perhaps we shouldn't be so sure, given what Jesus says to his audience in Luke 11, in verses 29 to 32. So let's dig in. Let's see what Jesus' audience was saying. Let's see how he responded. Firstly, we have the problem. And I'm actually going to go back to the previous bit, verses 14 to 16, to get the context here. What is the problem? Well, you, you may remember from two Sundays ago that Jesus was driving out a demon in Luke 11, verse 14. And I said quite a lot in that sermon about what we should think of demons and the spiritual realm. I'm not going to repeat myself now. You can listen back online if you missed it. What matters for today is that Jesus drove out the demon with ease, as he had done thousands of times before. And this was evidence, as we saw in 11 verses 20 to 22, that the kingdom of God had arrived on earth. Jesus, that is God's king, was the stronger man who could overpower the devil and plunder his kingdom by rescuing lost souls. 
So Satan's kingdom was in retreat, God's kingdom was breaking in, and his reign was being established in the hearts and the lives of those who turned from sin, turned from demonic influences, and followed Jesus. And for the sceptical, please do note that in verses 15 and 16, no one there doubted that Jesus had done something miraculous. No one denied that a demon had been driven out. And outside of the Bible, other ancient writers do not deny that Jesus had miraculous power. But some people refused to accept the divine origin of that power. They questioned where it came from. Either they were unsure about Jesus or they were already hostile to him. Now, why was that? Well, here was someone who defied their expectations of the Jewish Messiah. Here was someone who was frequently in conflict with the Jewish establishment, perhaps a little like an ancient equivalent of Martin Luther King or Malala Yousafzai. I'm not sure I can pronounce her name properly, sorry. Um, so a number of people struggled to believe that God could have sent Jesus, or they just didn't want to believe because of who he was. That's where the accusations came from of driving out demons by Beelzebul, and that's where the demand for a sign in verse 16 comes from. Now, Jesus had already given thousands of signs. He'd been healing the sick since the very start of his ministry, some of them without even being in the same place as them. He just gave the word from afar and they were healed. He'd been driving, he, he drove out a legion of demons from one man with a simple command. He fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children with five loaves and two fish. He raised a little girl from the dead. When the house had been crowded with people who saw and could testify that five minutes before she was very much dead and then she was alive again. So how could his audience possibly ask for a sign? Well, that brings us to our second point. Jesus' verdict in verse 29. How could this generation ask for more? Because they were a wicked generation, Jesus says. Now, all humanity is sinful, but there was something especially perverse about many in Jesus' own generation in Israel. It seemed that most people were drawn to Jesus primarily because of the miracles he performed, and that may be why Luke is saying that the crowd increased in verse 29. They've heard that Jesus has done yet another exorcism, and so they come flocking to the sign. Now, it's not that signs are always a bad thing to ask for. There are plenty of times in, in the Bible where God willingly gives them to help people believe his words. The signs authenticate his words, so to speak, like a signature on a document or like your, your, your fingerprint when you scan it to unlock your phone and it proves it's really you. But to keep asking for more signs when you've had plenty of proof, that is wicked. It is a sign of a hard, stubborn heart that doesn't want to believe. 
doesn't want to believe because Jesus isn't quite the Messiah you would like him to be. We can be like that too, can't we? It wasn't just people back then. Perhaps his teaching is just too demanding because it it asks us to give up things like our material comforts or cherished ambitions or the respect and approval of people who we, we admire and we want on our side, our friends, our families. Perhaps you find Jesus too uncompromising. Maybe because he insists he is the only way to be saved, the only way to come to God the Father. It could be all sorts of things, couldn't it? Jesus says uncomfortable things, so we don't always want to be persuaded by the revelation he has given. And yet... Jesus refuses to do any more. He refuses to give the kind of definitive sign from heaven, whatever that was going to be, that the crowd were asking for. This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it, he says. He's done enough. And if the skeptics aren't satisfied now, they probably never will be. So no more signs except for one. Which brings us to the third point. What is the sign? We're looking at verses 30 to 32 now. What is the sign that Jesus will give? Well, he says it's the sign of Jonah. But what does he mean by that? I have to admit, I find it quite hard to be sure. There's a lot of disagreement among scholars and all the rest of it. Now, when Matthew records the same episode in his gospel, he leaves in some additional words that Jesus spoke at this point. Jesus, in in Matthew's account, reminds them how the prophet Jonah spent three days and nights inside the belly of a fish. And in the same way, Jesus, the Son of Man, will spend three days and nights inside the heart or the belly of the earth. Now, in Matthew, he's clearly talking about his death and resurrection, which will soon happen when he goes to Jerusalem, when he's crucified. And just as Jonah was spat out by this fish after three days, went and preached in the city of Nineveh, so Jesus would rise from the dead after three days, announce God's victory over sin, and a certain hope of forgiveness. So Jesus' resurrection will be a sign to the skeptics of his generation. It will be a sign that his words and his power really were from God. And if the resurrection doesn't make you sit up and listen, I'm not sure anything will. The historical evidence for the resurrection played a, a really significant part in my own conversion. I came to see that there was no reasonable explanation for all of the events that followed Jesus' death, other than that he must have risen again. And as I started reading Matthew's Gospel for myself, I won't deny that it was quite a shock. I was 18 at this point, and I realized that many of the things I loved were not pleasing to God, that I had to change my ways. But I knew I had to obey Jesus because Who else could rise from the dead but someone sent by God? 
All of that is to say the resurrection is the greatest sign from heaven that Jesus is the Son of Man. That he is the, the mighty ruler to whom God will give all authority over every nation on earth, just as he promised in Daniel chapter 7. That's what the Son of Man thing means. And the resurrection might well be what Luke is hinting about here in our passage. Even though he leaves out Jesus' words about three days and nights. But I'm fairly sure that Luke left those words out because he doesn't want us to miss a more subtle way that Jesus is becoming a sign to his generation. It would have been so easy for him to include the words about the three days and nights, but he didn't. I assume it's deliberate. There is something else important he wants us to see. And I think that is that Jesus' preaching ministry ought to be enough in its own right to persuade us that he is the Son of Man, God's forever King. Enough that we should believe his words and repent of our sin and follow him. And I think that the comparisons Jesus makes in verses 31 to 32 help us to see this. So the queen of the south is the queen of Sheba, who goes to visit Solomon, that's uh, 1 Kings. And the men of Nineveh, um, they have two things in common. Firstly, they were not Jewish, they were Gentiles. The queen was from modern-day Ethiopia, or possibly Yemen, and the Ninevites were from modern-day Iraq. And what's more, Nineveh was the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire, which was one of Israel's greatest foes. So if, if God's kingdom in Old Testament times could mainly be identified with the nation of Israel, then Sheba and Nineveh definitely were not part of it. They were on the outside. And yet that changed. And that's the second thing that Sheba and Nineveh have in common. They both responded to signs of God's kingdom. But they weren't primarily miraculous signs from heaven. In both cases, this, the main sign was a man who spoke God's words. So the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's great wisdom, wisdom so great it could only have one possible source, God. And she traveled over 3,000 kilometers to find out if, if all she was hearing about Solomon was really true. And she brought her hardest questions to test him. And she was so impressed by his answers that she praised the Lord Solomon's God. She came to know the true God. It seems that she entered his kingdom mainly because she responded to a man who spoke God's words. And it's similar with the men of Nineveh. They repented of their very great sins, kinds of horrible cruelty, lust for power, idolatry, oppression. They repented and turned to the God of, God of Israel simply on the basis of Jonah's preaching. He spent three days and nights walking through the city, warning that in 40 days God would overthrow it. Now, he may have mentioned being swallowed up by the fish. We're not told that he did. And Nineveh is about at least a thousand kilometers inland from the coast where 
Jonah would have been spat out. So none of the Ninevites saw that. They were responding primarily to his preaching. And they believed God and they humbled themselves. They responded to a man who spoke God's words. Now what a contrast that is with the people of Jesus' own generation. They were not on the outside of God's kingdom, or so they thought. They didn't have to travel thousands of kilometers to hear God's words. They had Jesus preaching in their own towns and villages. And as Luke tells us in chapter 4, his teaching had authority. Jesus was different to the other rabbis of his day. And his teaching was backed up by all those countless miracles and exorcisms. He was clearly more than just a wise man like Solomon. He was clearly more than just a prophet like Jonah. As he says in verses 31 to 32, something greater is here. Nothing less than God's forever king revealed. And God's kingdom advancing with power more than ever before. And like with the Queen of Sheba, foreigners in Israel were responding. A Roman centurion, Luke tells us, responded with greater faith than Jesus had seen in any Israelite. And like with the men of Nineveh, the obvious sinners of that generation, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, were responding, turning their lives around, flocking to Jesus. But the pious-seeming Jews didn't seem to believe Jesus' words. They rejected him with slander and with unfounded skepticism and the demand for more signs. So we can well believe it when Jesus says that the Queen of the South and the men of Nineveh will condemn that generation at the final judgment. Their unbelief was inexcusable. Like denying the Holocaust against Jewish people in the 1930s and 40s but with far more severe consequences than being shamed on social media as a conspiracy theorist. So to sum it all up, Jesus' generation had heard more than enough to repent and follow him. Gentiles in previous centuries had repented and believed on the basis of much less Now, you might think that's fair enough for them, but we haven't seen Jesus firsthand. We haven't seen his miracles. So surely the same standard can't apply to us. And how do we know that the Bible's a a reliable account of what Jesus said and did anyway? How can we be sure it's true? That's the point. Jesus' words should be enough to convict us of our sins, so that we ask forgiveness, so that we follow him. His words recorded in the Bible. His words accurately describe the reality of this world and why it seems so wonderful one minute and then so messed up and broken the next. His words clearly show the reality of sin in our hearts and point to the only possible solution, that God forgives us at greatest cost to himself, 
and changes our hearts by his Spirit. If words of the Bible make sense of the world we live in, if only we have the humility and the honesty to look at ourselves and look at the world around us and admit it, And both his words and his deeds were written down by the people who knew him, the people who saw him. We believe plenty of things, don't we, that we've never seen firsthand, never heard firsthand, because we've read them in newspapers or journals or on the radio or the TV or Twitter or news apps. We believe all sorts of things every day for which we don't have firsthand evidence. Why is the Bible automatically less trustworthy? If you don't feel willing to believe, ask yourself why. Do you have doubts about the truth claims of Jesus? Do you, do you doubt the reliability of the Bible that records them? Well, then, by all means, look into it. Ask your questions. See how the manuscripts have been preserved with remarkable consistency right the way back to the earliest fragment we have from 125 AD. See how we have more early manuscript evidence for Jesus and his life than any other figure in the ancient world. And by all means, read up on the overwhelmingly compelling evidence for the resurrection. I'm more than happy to recommend some books or podcasts afterwards. Others in this room could make recommendations too. Drop us an email if you're watching online and you want to know. But if, if you have surveyed the evidence and you still doubt, is that because you don't want to believe? Is that because you find this Jesus too hard to swallow? Is it because following him seems too costly? Is it just because you don't like the idea of another person ruling your life, however good and loving they may seem? Please be honest with yourself. Please be honest with God. Because if you are resisting the words of Jesus, he shows us that we are in a very dangerous place. If we continue like this, people who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, who's never even heard of him or read the Bible, will condemn us at the final judgment. And God will agree with them. They will condemn us because they responded to what they did hear of his kingdom. And we have heard so much more. We have it at our fingertips. Dare we reject that? On the other hand, and finally, if you do believe, have confidence in the words that Jesus has given us. It's fairly noticeable, isn't it, that we don't see many miracles in countries like ours where the church has been well-established for a long, long time. I'm not saying they never happen. Last year, some of you may remember, we had um, Matt, the, the pastor of Emmanuel Church, Oxford, 
come to one of our prayer meetings and share with us that they they planted a church in Sheffield, but their pastor, Dave, had come down with a serious illness. I think it was a form of cancer. It was looking severe, probably terminal. And yet, within 24 hours of that prayer meeting, it wasn't just us praying, Emmanuel Church and others were praying too. Within 24 hours, all trace of the disease had disappeared from his blood. And the the consultant said he'd never seen anything like it before. One or two people at MRC have similar stories. Jesus still does miraculous things today because he's kind. But the point in this passage is we don't need any more of them in order to have a living and confident faith. We don't need them. What we have in Scripture is enough. So we shouldn't lose confidence in his his word because we see relatively few conversions in the UK. That is not because people need more evidence to convince them. It could be down to a number of factors. It could be that our generation is particularly hard-hearted, like Jesus is, It could be what Harrison said so perceptively last week from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that many of us who call ourselves Christians in the UK are not very distinct from the society around us. Many are still very ensnared by the idols of our culture. Many of us are perhaps too fearful of suffering for the sake of Jesus, so that Our faith does not draw the attention of unbelievers. It doesn't act like the Thessalonians' faith did. It's not compelling. I recognize this battle in my own heart. It's not just a problem out there. Unbelief could be because we're not old enough in speaking about Jesus to others. So people just aren't hearing the words in the first place. As Paul says, how can they call on him if they have not heard? It could be partly down to the poor track record of of evangelicals in this country in reaching the working classes and deprived communities. At least for the last several decades, it wasn't always like that. But basically, the kind of people the New Testament presents as most likely to receive the word of God and believe just aren't hearing it. There aren't churches in those communities that are preaching the gospel for the most part. So unbelief could be because of a problem out there and hardness of heart. It it could be, probably is partly, because of a problem in the church. But we haven't really heard and obeyed Jesus' words as well as we might ourselves. But it is definitely not a problem with scripture, with the word of God. So if you're wavering in your own faith, please don't give up on churches like this where weak and faltering that we are, we, we faithfully seek to preach what scripture says. And if and when you move away from Oxford, as most of us seem to in the end, Please look for a church that is committed to teaching clearly all of what Scripture says. 
and especially the person and the work of Jesus. Don't join a church simply because it looks like the happening place to be, because it has a nice building or slick worship or flashy outreach programs. It's easy to draw a crowd with something that looks impressive, just as it was for Jesus to draw a crowd with his miracles. But the power to save comes primarily from God's words. Is this flashy-seeming church preaching that word as clearly and as faithfully and as fully as it should? And then in our own testimony about Jesus to family and friends, again, don't lose confidence. The gospel can sound so foolish, can't it? Scripture admits that. It can sound weak and unimpressive, even offensive, because it requires that we accept something we really don't want to, that we are sinners. But as Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's the words themselves that bring life, not the skill or the eloquence of the messenger. And finally, to the extent that, like me, you find yourself struggling to hear and believe and obey Jesus' words fully in your own life, come back to what he says in Luke eleven twenty eight. He says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed are those. It's so easy to think we won't be blessed if we turn from cherished idols or if we risk alienation and rejection from the people we love by confessing our faith in Jesus and what we really believe. Most of my family, in fact, all of my side of the family are not believers. And I have more than once felt very fearful that I will be very miserable if I am honest that I believe they are in danger of hell if they don't believe in Jesus. I fear their anger. I fear their rejection. And it's easy to think I will be miserable for the rest of my life if I don't have the love of my family anymore. Similarly, I tend to fear I will be utterly miserable if I do something not even that radical, like moving into an unglamorous house in an unglamorous town for the sake of being a witness to the gospel there, never mind actually moving into a deprived community. I fear if I don't have my comfort, I will be miserable. But Jesus says, I will be blessed. Back in chapter 9, verse 24, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And that, that is to say, when we try to cling to our lives and our comforts in this world, when we try to preserve them, we will lose the very thing that we're seeking to hold on to. But when we trust Jesus' promise, when we lay down our lives for him, we really will be blessed. we really will find joy in following him. We will find our faith confirmed, affirmed, strengthened. 
Not always immediately, not always consistently, but enough to keep us trusting. Enough to help us then take that next baby step of faith into the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable for the sake of Jesus. And we will slowly but surely find the joy of living for a kingdom that will last forever, that we cannot lose, and for treasure that no one can take away from us. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a joy that you want? I want it. And I want my heart to be more convinced that I will get it. So if you're like me, why don't we pray now for that? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your clarity that your word is enough enough for a living and true and strong faith. Lord, we thank you that this has been preserved for us for 2,000 years so, so well. Thank you that when we look into the evidence surrounding it, it, it supports your word, it doesn't undermine it. Thank you most of all that your word rings true when we look at ourselves and the world around us. Lord, for those among us who don't yet believe, please, would you bring that conviction that your Holy Spirit gives? That your word is enough for us to repent, to turn around, to build our lives upon. Lord, for those of us who, who do believe but are, are weak, are struggling, who are inconsistent in our faith, please grow our confidence. Lord, help us to believe that we will be blessed as we continue to take those baby steps towards sacrificing used to be us and embracing the life that you give us in your kingdom. Give us confidence, Lord, and let our witness, let your word on our lips ring out more powerfully in this land. We long that you would soften hard hearts, but we also long that we would be more faithful messengers. So please help us in our doubts. Please give us confidence. Amen. Amen.